Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you articles from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded for the listening week that began the 23rd of September, and your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Turning first to theroot.com, an article that was posted originally on September 12th, written by Wayne Washington, the brother you need to know in the White House. The Root sent a writer to talk with Stephen Benjamin, the former Columbia, South Carolina mayor, and a current senior advisor to President Biden. It was a quiet Friday morning at the White House complex. Construction crews were hard at work outside, trying their best to keep the 223-year-old building close to technological relevance. The President, Joe Biden, was out west, creating a new national monument. His political opponents were making sure he wouldn't be able to bask in that accomplishment. By day's end, the president's son would be the target of a special counsel's investigation, the equivalent of an election season burr on the presidential butt. Before that prickly calamity, Steve Benjamin was already on the job for the president. In his upstairs White House office, just up a floor from the one occupied by Vice President Kamala Harris, he was finishing up one call and was getting ready to handle another. Oh, you don't know Steve Benjamin? He is the indispensable brother in the Biden administration, the man you need to know if you need to know. He describes his role as the, quote, front door of the administration. But a more apt description is that he is the front door, the side door, the back door, and the black door. Got a problem with what the president did, what he said? Wondered why he backed what he backed? Call Steve, director of the White House Office of Public Engagement. Chances are you've got his number or you know someone who does. That's because Benjamin, 53, was president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, a position he won after first becoming mayor of Columbia, South Carolina, an office he won three times before moving on to what he thought would be an enjoyable time as a retired politician and private attorney. Mayors don't have the privilege of political pontificating. If a pothole has to be filled, they make sure it's filled. If a housing project needs a federal funding kick, they go get it. It's a rubber-meets-the-road kind of gig, and mayors of all political stripes bitch and bond over it. No one understood that better than Benjamin. When the 2020 election rolled into South Carolina, Benjamin didn't endorse Biden. He endorsed a fellow mayor, New York's Michael Bloomberg. But Biden won the South Carolina primary, the Democratic Party presidential nomination, and, of course, the presidency. As he filled out his executive staff, the president didn't hold grudges. He had his chief of staff, Jeff Zients, forgive my mispronunciation, possibly there, 
He reached out to Benjamin, Benjamin's wife, then South Carolina Circuit Court Judge DeAndrea Gist. Benjamin listened in on the call. Usually I can hide some things from my wife, said Benjamin, laughing. Around seven o'clock in the morning, I got a call from Jeff Zients, the president's chief of staff. Forgive me, I'll start that sentence over. Around seven o'clock in the morning, I got a call from Jeff Zients, the president's chief of staff. It was early because he was in South Africa. It was much later for him. She had a chance to listen to the entire conversation, and she's like, are you serious? But she was intrigued, as I was, about the possibility of serving. Benjamin decided that what he had planned, an enjoyable and perhaps lucrative return to private law, couldn't match the allure of getting back into the policy ring. When the president calls you to serve, you serve, said Benjamin. The opportunity to serve the American people at scale, to be in the room when decisions are made, this really appeared to be an opportunity to make a big difference at a time when it most mattered. Judge Benjamin, in parentheses, would also get her own call from the Biden administration, which nominated her for a spot on the U.S. Court of Appeals. She was confirmed by the U.S. Senate, part of a wave of black women put on the federal bench by the Biden administration. Benjamin said he quickly got a sense of what working in the Biden administration would be about. When I sat with the president and he told me I was taking the job, I assumed that he wanted some people to sell the successes of the administration, he said. He was very clear to me that this job was more than selling the successes. It was more about listening as well, listening to these diverse and disparate communities that we engage with, business and labor, our civil rights groups, faith leaders, our seniors, and our youth and veterans. Benjamin said he has clear and unfettered access to the president. He meets with senior White House staff regularly, and his office in the building is not far from that of the vice president and president. She's right there down the stairs from me, Benjamin said, and he's down the hall from her. We interact frequently. It's not uncommon to be in a meeting just like this, and my assistant knocks on the door and says, the president needs you now. We drop everything and we go. Benjamin isn't simply taking orders during those meetings. He's providing insight, a ground-level view a president flying on Air Force One could miss. Almost every meeting that we've had, he stops and he asks me, I'm usually the one Pardon me, I'm usually the only formerly elected official, he says. So, what are the people saying? What are you hearing? said Benjamin. He wants to know what people in communities back home who are working every single day to make ends meet, what they're hearing and what they're saying. It helps that Benjamin still lives in Columbia and travels regularly between the Palmetto State and Washington, D.C. He said, I stay engaged in Columbia. We still live in Columbia. I live on American Airlines sometimes, but I try to stay close. It's our job to keep our ears to the ground and share what the administration is doing. If Benjamin's job was solely as an administrative, pardon me, as an administration pitchman, he would be effective. 
asked white people in general and black people in particular should trust Biden, Benjamin dives in. He's been, as he promised to be, a people, pardon me, a president for all people, said Benjamin. In the engagements I've had with him, he wants to know what this means to citizens in urban, suburban, and rural America, whether they're in red states or blue states. Equity, fairness, is a guiding principle of the administration, said Benjamin. It all goes back to his very first day when he issued an executive order demanding that equity serve as connective tissue between every single piece of legislation that he would support and everything that happens at this White House, he said. And as a result, we've had a miraculous turnaround in the economy, record low unemployment, we've got significant reductions in the deficit, We've watched the economy create over 13 million new jobs now. We've seen the lowest unemployment in the African-American community in 50 years since we started keeping track. More black women appointed to the appeals court than any of the other presidents combined. I look at the proof in the pudding. I would tell people to judge Joe Biden on his record as president. Benjamin is helping to craft that record. In the aftermath of the racial murders in Jacksonville, Benjamin listened to community members and shared what he heard with the president. Earlier, when the Supreme Court was about to bar consideration of race in college and university admissions, Benjamin was among those meeting regularly to craft the administration's response. The result is something the administration calls the adversity standard, a rubric it believes would allow colleges and universities to consider a range of factors in admissions. Benjamin said, It allows various factors that are race-neutral that will allow colleges and universities to have a tool to potentially use to make sure that our colleges and universities remain diverse. There's power in that. Power in bringing those diverse ideas into civil society and into our boardrooms. Benjamin said the administration is advising colleges and universities that, in determining whether to accept an applicant, colleges and universities can still consider, quote, where you grew up, what high school you went to, if you suffered from any form of discrimination. Those are some of the factors. There is much more work to do, and Benjamin is just getting started. Every day, I just try to approach this job as a blessing, he said. Every single day, I come in here and think about the sacrifices of men and women, not just the ones we know of and celebrate around the March on Washington or around the King holiday or Black History Month, but those unnamed folks whose names will never be in lights and the sacrifices it took to help us get here and have the privilege of serving. I try to lean in to those better angels of our nature and just serve it's a blessing. Next, another article related to the Biden administration. This was published on the 20th, written by Gavin Reynolds. We're still reading from theroot.com. Under Biden-Harris administration, black people have gained more than we know, says White House Insider. These accomplishments have done a great deal to lift up black and brown people, says former Harris speechwriter. 
Since taking office, the president and vice president have delivered historic wins for the American people. Game-changing investments have led to a manufacturing boom, spurred record job creation, and helped lower the costs of items that folks rely on most. These accomplishments have done a great deal to lift up black and brown people who for so long have been beaten down by the individual and collective actions of our society. Under the Biden-Harris administration, black and Hispanic unemployment rates have hit record lows, and compared to before the COVID-19 pandemic, over 2 million more Hispanic Americans, nearly 900,000 more Asian Americans, and over 750,000 more black Americans now have jobs. A milestone was reached earlier this year when it was reported that the black un pardon me, the black employment population ratio had eclipsed that of whites for the first time on record. These strong job gains have placed workers of color on stronger economic footing and helped make the American dream more attainable for them than it has ever been. Importantly, the Biden-Harris administration's commitment to making child care more accessible and more affordable will continue to help enable workers of color, especially women, to enter and stay in the workforce at these high, pardon me, at these high rates. The creation of good-paying jobs has been just one tangible result of the president and vice president's plan to create opportunity for people of color. Their plan has lowered costs also. Thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, seniors on Medicare now pay no more than $35 per month for insulin and will pay no more than $2,000 per year on prescription drugs starting in 2025. One of the major provisions of the bipartisan infrastructure law is already helping more than 20 million American families save on their monthly Internet bill. The Biden-Harris administration is also going after junk fees, including overdraft fees and credit card late fees, which disproportionately affect lower-income households and minority households. These savings all add up and will help make it easier for families to get by and ultimately save for the future. Despite all this, a number of recent polls, including a New York Times Siena College poll released last month, suggest that working-class voters of color are not as enthusiastic about the 2024 Biden-Harris ticket as one would expect. Economic concerns, along with others, have been identified as being top of the mind for those voters. It would be a mistake to conclude that even with the monumental progress that the president and vice president have championed since taking office, there are not still folks struggling to make it by. The president himself acknowledged that very point in a speech last month when he made clear that he was not, quote, here to declare victory on the economy. Indeed, as he pointed out, we have more work to do. Driven from day one to help ease the pain that working class people of color have been feeling, the president and vice president have made it a priority to deliver relief to those who most need it. That is why they enacted an historic expansion of the child tax credit as part of the American Rescue Plan, which put cash in pockets and helped reduce black child poverty by over 50%. Longer term, their administration has been pushing to help release borrowers from the crushing impacts of debt, whether medical debt, student debt, or otherwise. 
President Biden and Vice President Harris have taken all of these steps and delivered all of these accomplishments in the face of stiff Republican obstructionism. Every single Republican in Congress voted against the American Rescue Plan and the Inflation Reduction Act. The administration's historic student debt relief plan was struck down by conservative justices on the Supreme Court. On another top-of-mind issue to working-class voters of color, crime, Republicans continue to refuse to entertain additional gun reform beyond the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Nevertheless, the president and vice president continue to fight for all Americans, especially people of color, working hard to provide for their families. They're hard at work overseeing the implementation of their administration's historic investments, pardon me, which will only further increase economic opportunity over the coming months. They are identifying more and more ways to lower costs and save people money, and they continue to beat the drum on other salient issues calling on Congress seemingly daily to pass legislation that strengthens access to the ballot box and legislation that keeps communities safe, just as Vice President Harris has been doing on her ongoing fight for our Freedoms College tour. Like President Biden, I do believe that we have more work to do to make real the American dream for all people in our nation. With the president and vice president in the White House, I am confident that work will continue, but whether it continues until 2025 or until 2029 is up to us. A note at the bottom about this author, Gavin Reynolds is a former speechwriter to Vice President Kamala Harris, and he is a first-year law student at Yale University. Next article written by Angela Johnson, posted on the 19th. Actors, activists join LeVar Burton in the fight against book bans. Gabriel Union, Billy Porter, and Nikki Giovanni are among the creatives who signed an open letter condemning conservatives' growing calls for censorship. Gabriel Union, Billy Porter, Nikki Giovanni, and Angie Thomas are among the over 175 actors, musicians, authors, and activists who signed an open letter this week initiated by actor and beloved Reading Rainbow host LeVar Burton against the growing trend of book bans across the country. Just in time for National Band Book Months in October, Burton has partnered with public advocacy organization Move On Political Action on a campaign warning of the dangers of censorship and they're urging creatives to get in on the fight. It's embarrassing that we are banning books in this country, in this culture, in this day and age, and it's dangerous that a handful of individuals are deciding that any book with black and queer people is divisive, said Burton, executive producer of the 2023 documentary The Right to Read. In a statement to The Root, he went on, We are calling on everyone to join us in raising their voices to uphold artistic freedom embrace multicultural history, and put a stop once and for all to book bans. Although a recent NPR poll revealed that most Republicans are against book bans, it's impossible to deny the conservative minority that has made it their mission to censor books that deal with issues of race, gender identity, and sexuality. According to the American Library Association, 
2022 produced the highest number of attempted book bans in the 20 years the organization has been collecting the data. Republican state lawmakers in Missouri are taking things one scary step further, not just banning books, but pretending to burn them. And Move On's letter warns that book bans are just the beginning. It's only a matter of time before regressive, suppressive ideologues will shift their focus toward other forms of art and entertainment to further their attacks and efforts to scapegoat marginalized communities, particularly BIPOC and LGBTQ plus folks. Read the letter. As part of its campaign, Move On also plans to distribute free banned books with its banned bookmobile throughout the month of October in states like Georgia, Virginia, and South Carolina. And on the subject of books, still reading from theroot.com, a list they've made for the best books for black parents. First, we have Very Intentional Parenting, Awakening the Empowered Parent Within, written by Destiny Ann Davis. Yes, it is possible to have open dialogue with your children while establishing clear expectations and boundaries. And working mom and parenting coach Destiny Ann Davis shows you how in her book. Throughout this guide to positive parenting, she shares practical advice on things parents can do to awaken the best in themselves. Next, My Brown Baby on the joys and challenges of raising African-American children from the award-winning website, it says, by Deneen Milner, New York Times best-selling author. My Brown Baby is a collection of some of the best essays and articles from parenting expert and best-selling author Deneen Milner's popular parenting blog, mybrownbaby.com. This book gives black parents a safe space to explore all of the unique challenges we face. Next we have, Oh Sis, You're Pregnant, The Ultimate Guide to Black Pregnancy and Motherhood by Shanicia Boswell. If you want to know what to expect when you're expecting while black, Oh Sis, You're Pregnant is the book for you. Shanika Boswell breaks down, that's spelled differently there, Shanicia Boswell breaks down all of the physical and emotional changes that come along with pregnancy and tackles important issues like navigating our healthcare system and financial planning for childbirth and beyond. And the last one for today's reading. Dear Igioele, or A Feminist Manifesto in 15 Suggestions, by Chimimanda Ngozi Adichie. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Dear Ijiawele was inspired by a letter she received from a friend asking how to raise her young daughter to be a feminist. In this book, she offers 15 suggestions on helping our daughters become strong, independent women. Next one, written by Candace McDuffie, published on the 24th. The best star-studded moments from Congressional Black Caucus's 2023 Phoenix Awards. I might not go through the slideshow, but a brief report here. 
From Kamala Harris to Ayanna Presley and Ilan Omar, the event was one for the books. The 2023 Congressional Black Caucus Annual Legislative Conference Phoenix Awards in Washington, D.C. have come and gone and looked like it was one for the books. Last night, Vice President Kamala Harris gave resounding remarks and honorees included White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass, and House Minority Leader Representative Hakeem Jeffries. The evening also included a performance from legendary group New Edition. This year's caucus is the largest ever, with 58 members representing 82 million Americans and making up almost one quarter of the House Democratic Caucus. And coming from the business section of theroot.com, written by Amira Castilla, published way back in December of 2022, we have Meet Princess Jenkins, owner of Harlem's The Brownstone. This entrepreneur was one of the winners of Harlem's first 2022 Minority Women-Owned Business Pitch Competition. Princess Jenkins, proud owner of Harlem-based boutique, The Brownstone, was awarded a $5,000 grant after being named one of the winners of the first Carver Federal Savings Bank and Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce 2022 Minority Women-Owned Business Pitch Competition. The goal? To get minority women-owned businesses to pitch a plan that will help make their business more environmentally friendly. Jenkins, whose store specializes in selling, styling, and tailoring women's clothing sizes from 12 to 20, won the competition by pitching a virtual catalog for her boutique, as opposed to a 200,000-page print catalog that traditionally would go to her 5,000 customers. In her pitch, Jenkins included a shocking fact to help put into perspective how important her plan is. We are going to save the lives of 200 trees, she said, and if you were to line them up, they would go across 125th Street from beginning to end, and you'd still have some trees left. In addition to a virtual catalog, the entrepreneur will also use part of the grant money to install environmentally friendly lighting inside her boutique. Moving on now, this one comes from the New York Times Streetscapes section, and it was originally published on September 8th, written by John Freeman Gill. How Black Nurses Were Recruited to Staten Island to Fight a Deadly Disease Many old buildings at a New York City hospital are in ruins, but it played a key role in the battle against tuberculosis, which killed 5.6 million people in the U.S. in the first half of the 20th century. Virginia Allen, a poised 92-year-old with an elegant sweep of white hair and a nagging case of sciatica, remembers the first time she set foot on the sprawling green campus of Seaview Hospital three-quarters of a century ago. I felt in awe of it, she said, of the complex, more than two dozen buildings on an elevated site in the Tote Hill section of Staten Island. It was a huge place. The year was 1947, and Miss Allen was an unworldly 16-year-old from Detroit, who had come to be trained as a pediatric nurse's aide at Seaview, 
which had opened in 1913 to wage war on tuberculosis. Known as the White Plague, the highly contagious disease killed 5.6 million people in the U.S. in the first half of the 20th century when there was no direct cure. For an inexperienced young black woman who had never been anywhere but, quote, at home and at school, as she put it, the hospital's wards teemed with both danger and opportunity, offering her a free education and a professional nursing career. She arrived at a, pardon me, at a pivotal moment in time, said Maria Smilios, whose gripping book, titled The Black Angels, The Untold Story of the Nurses Who Helped Cure Tuberculosis, will be published on September 19th. It's the golden age of antibiotics. It's post-World War II. The city is alive and thrumming with economic activity, but there's a huge nurse shortage, so she becomes one of hundreds recruited to fill the ranks. At Seaview, virtually the entire nursing staff was black. In the hospital's early decades, the nurses had been predominantly white, but in 1929, they began quitting to work at jobs that wouldn't kill them. To fill the void, Seaview recruited black nurses from the Jim Crow South, enticing them with offers of education, a career, and a living wage. At the time, Seaview was one of only four of the more than two dozen municipal hospitals in New York that did not discriminate against black nurses. The rest either refused to hire them or had quotas limiting the number of black nurses they employed. Many of the women working at Seaview, including Miss Allen, lived in the nurses' residence, a gracious Spanish mission-inflected dormitory with a red terracotta-tiled roof topped by gabled attic dormers. In 1952, some of the nurses facilitated the trials at Seaview that refined the use of asaniazid hmm, drugs. Forgive me, that's isoniazid drugs, which was the first successful direct treatment of tuberculosis. Their crucial frontline work included transporting patients to bronchoscopies, collecting their sputum, monitoring their vital statistics, and completing detailed daily reports for the doctors. At Seaview, me, as Seaview's patient roles shrunk, the hospital's focus shifted to geriatric care in the early 1960s, and over time, many of its buildings were vacated and left vulnerable to the elements and trespassing urban explorers. But a few of the historic buildings have been renovated for new uses. One is the nurse's residence, which is now a private retirement home called Park Lane at Seaview. Astonishingly, after the home's grand opening in 2009, Miss Allen came full circle, moving back into the former dormitory where she lived more than 70 years ago. Her return was an accidental homecoming, she said. An administrator invited her to the ribbon-cutting for the renovated facility, and after taking a tour, she decided she liked the place enough to move in. Today she makes her home on the same floor of the same building where she resided in the late 40s and early 50s, surrounded by the hulking, vine-cloaked ruins of healthcare buildings where she and her colleagues once worked. 
Though the city designated the structures as part of an historic district in 1985, many have been left to decay. I feel privileged to have come back here to live where I first started my career, she said not long ago, sitting in her comfortable fourth-floor apartment. The buildings that have gone to the dogs are still beautiful, and I feel there is still some history of what Seaview was that is remaining here. For her, these crumbling structures are crowded with ghosts of indigent children and fellow nurses lost to disease or time. Miss Allen, who represented nurses and social workers for a labor union in the 1960s and returned to patient care on Staten Island in the 1980s, now volunteers at the Staten Island Ballet, which occupies Seaview's former pathology lab. But as she goes about her day, the past has a way of intruding on the present. Time and people, quote, tried to erase the story of the nurses who worked here, who gave so much of their time and energy, she said. I'm fortunate to still be here. Some caught tuberculosis and died, and some recovered. It's just like the healthcare workers who worked during COVID. Seaview was designed by the architect Raymond F. Almeral to help achieve the Apollo program-like goal of Dr. Herman Biggs, the general medical officer for the city's health department, to, quote, completely wipe out pulmonary, pulmonary tuberculosis in a single generation. Mr. Almeral's innovative plan featured eight rectangular open-air patients' pavilions forming a half-moon that radiated from a stately administration building adorned with multicolored terracotta. The gold standard of tuberculosis care at the time was the rest cure, essentially an abundance of air and sunshine. Mr. Almeral's pavilions, with their polygonal solariums and open-air porches flanking every floor, created a suitably salubrious environment. A consistent effort has been made to express hospital purpose, he said in the model, pardon me, in the modern hospital in 1914. By simplicity and by light, air, abundant veranda space, and cheerfulness. The grand facade of the nurses' dormitory evoked places that barred black women from entering except through the back door, plantation estates, and stately mansions. That was written by Miss Smilios in The Black Angels. But to Miss Allen in the late 1940s, it was home. Most of the nurses there were friends of her Aunt Edna Sutton Ballard, a surgical nurse who had come to Seaview in the early 1930s and had inspired her niece to apply to work at the hospital. And they took Miss Allen under their wings. Like the other residents, Miss Allen had a tiny room with a door of quarter-sawn oak, a bed, a chest, a chair, and a small sink. A favorite spot was the rumpus room, a place of camaraderie and mahogany bookcases, and a fireplace decorated with Delft tiles. It was a lot of fun because we had a grand piano there, said Miss Allen, and many of the nurses played, so we'd sing and talk and play cards. The rumpus room was also where nurses would gather together to decide how they might move forward in terms of equality, said Miss Smilios, whose book describes a notable civil rights struggle at the dormitory. 
1937, when the residence reopened after an expansion, nurses rediscovered, or pardon me, nurses discovered signs in the new dining hall bearing the words reserved for whites. They went straight to the New York Amsterdam News, an influential black newspaper, which ran a story under the headline, Nurses Stage Walkout for Discrimination. With racial tension still simmering two years after a riot in Harlem, Mayor Fiorella Lagardia hopped a ferry for Staten Island. Following a meeting with hospital administrators, he and the officials announced that, quote, such segregation would not be tolerated and the discriminatory signs were removed. Miss Allen's memories, however, are overwhelmingly positive. She loved donning her blue nurse's aid uniform with white stockings and shoes and caring for the babies and children at the pediatric hospital, which today is a forbidding wreck hemmed in by forest. She was the youngest caregiver there, she said. It was the innocent taking care of the innocent. Working with her two supervising nurses, one African-American and one German-Irish, felt like being part of a team, she said. Nonetheless, she added, white parents would occasionally show racial discrimination between their children and the workers, wanting her to, quote, drop what you were doing and care for their child, as if their child was more important than the child you were taking care of. Miss Allen did not succumb. My personality is such, she said, that I would tell them respectfully that I'd be right with them when I was done doing what I was doing. After several years, Miss Allen became a nurse by graduating from a city program, and before returning to the pediatric hospital in her freshly earned Nurses Whites and Cape, she worked briefly in Seaview adult wards. The most striking ornamental aspect of these pavilions was the six-foot-high terracotta frieze running around each building beneath its eaves. Here, against a backdrop of golden tiles, could be found polychrome images of doctors, seashells, garlands, red crosses, and white nurses. Although New York and New Jersey had terracotta companies capable of fine work, like the ornament on the Woolworth building, Mr. Amaral commissioned Seaview's ceramics from the De Porcelain Flesse Company in Delft, Holland. The terracotta images were creating using a sectile technique introduced in the 1900 World's Fair in Paris. This method allowed for a curvilinear tile shaped, or pardon me, shape that followed the contours of the caregivers and children depicted in the images. In 1998, the Friends of Terracotta initiated a campaign urging the City Landmarks Commission to promote the preservation of these rare tiles, but the effort, though backed by more than 30 preservation groups and individuals, failed. Parentheses. Three mural sections were removed by city workers and are now displayed in the nursing care facility that replaced four of the pavilions in 1973. In June, New York City Health Plus Hospitals agreed to allow the New York City Fire Department to occupy the old Seaview Staff House for 40 years. The department will invest $20 million to renovate the building into classroom training space for employees. A City Landmarks Commission spokeswoman said that the agency cares deeply about the adaptive reuse and preservation of the buildings, 
in the historic district that includes Seaview and works in partnership with other city agencies in an advisory manner. In 2016, the city announced that it would solicit proposals for a wellness community that could include the restoration of the remaining four adult pavilions. Seven years on, a spokeswoman for the city's Economic Development Corporation said that the hospital was still seeking alignment between multiple stakeholders on the way forward. In the meantime, the moldering wards are being swallowed up by forest. One of these wrecked pavilions looms eerily behind the parking lot of Miss Allen's home, and each day the retired nurse and the historic landmark grow older together. Miss Allen turned 92 on August 15th, and to Debbie Ann Page, who is a co-president of the Staten Island Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, the best way to celebrate the non-agenarian caregiver and her colleagues is not to mythologize them as angels, but rather to see them as human beings who overcame daunting challenges. Miss Page said, Staten Island has a difficult time in terms of race from its inception, and not only were these women and women of color, they were frightening, pardon me, and not only, yep, pardon me, same as I just read, and not only were these women and women of color, they were frightening to the surrounding community because they were perceived as people of color bringing the contagion with them. Many commuted to work and had to endure people moving away from them on public transportation, she added. So, for me, the idea that they endured and persevered is much more worth honoring than just this idea of an angel who gives you a kiss and you're cured. Next article from the Washington Post from Sports. This was published September 21st, written by Kevin B. Blackstone. Deion Sanders hasn't revolutionized college football, but he could. As Colorado prepared to kick off to Colorado State to start what became a thrilling double-overtime college football game watched by an ESPN late-night record, 9.3 million viewers last weekend, there was a ping-pong game in the Colorado locker room, ostensibly overseen by its head coach, Deion Sanders. It featured legendary rapper Master P., founder of No Limit Records, against Offset, a member of the award-winning hip-hop group Migos. Then Sanders had rapper Lil Wayne, whose gun conviction was pardoned by President Donald Trump, lead the Buffaloes on to Folsom Field in Boulder with a performance of Wayne's classic Ride from My in Sky is the Limit. Boulder is home to a little more than 100,000 residents, 89% of whom are white and 1% of whom are black. And the place went wild. Lil Wayne, Offset, and Master P were later joined in cheering Sanders' Buffaloes by Memphis rapper Key Glock, who owes his nom de rap to what the Violence Policy Center reported is a favorite handgun of mass shooters. The scene in Boulder prompted Greg Carr, a Howard University professor of Afro-American studies and of law, and one of the architects of the AP African American History course that reactionary Florida Governor Ron DeSantis attacked as political, to denounce the public theater of Colorado football on social media as, quote, plantation college athletics and 
minstrelsy on steroids. Minstrelsy on steroids, pardon me. At least Sanders is cashing in on the black culture he imported to Colorado, along with his indubitable inspirational talent and a coaching acumen that has the Buffaloes 3-0, to zero, ranked in the top 20 and the talk of all sports. The real revolution, though, the one that could change college football, hasn't yet begun. Sanders signed a contract for which he'll pocket around $5.5 million per year. His commercial appeal is such that it was hard to remember a break in the game when he didn't appear hawking some product. He's selling mirrored sunglasses he sports on the sidelines and handed out to media members far too eager to suspend skepticism to be a party to the ride. And some of his players are profiting too, particularly his star quarterback's son, Shedur, who is said to have the top name, image, and likeness value in college football, valued by one estimate at $5.1 million. What Sanders is doing with black culture on the sports stage isn't new, of course, but, as Carr alluded, Sanders, under the guidance of a PR woman trained in the NFL's marketing offices, Constance Schwartz-Marini, who has worked with everyone from Michael Strahan to Aaron Andrews to Snoop Dogg and Wiz Khalifa, is daring a dangerous walk as a black coach between his use of black culture and freedom to be who he might be. As the British cultural critic Ellis Cashmore observed in his 1997 book, The Black Culture Industry, inflating the significance of black culture may work against tangible enhancements to the lives of African Americans. The most significant value of black culture may be in providing whites with proof of the end of racism while keeping the racial hierarchy essentially intact. Indeed, in the vast wasteland for aspiring black head coaches, that is, elite college football, Sanders being able to embody his sobriquet, primetime, Cool, cool, ultra cool was bop cool. Icebox cool, so cool, cold cool. His wine didn't have to be cooled. Him was air-conditioned cool. As poet Haki Madubuti once rhymed. Is exclusive. It's due to his national persona built up since a sports information director at Florida State decided to pin him with the nickname Neon Dion. From that day, Sanders, now 56, figured out brilliantly and fearlessly a mutually exploitative relationship with the media. Among black coaches, only Sanders, insulated by the stardom of his celebrity, has such standing. After all, here's a guy who once petulantly doused baseball player-turned-announcer Tim McGarver, McCarver with water, after being hard-boiled by McCarver's criticism. Yet, Sanders suffered no long-term slight from either of the games he played so electrically. I've not seen in my time around professional sports a greater athlete than Sanders, who appeared to end his non-parial NFL career in Washington before coming back after a three-year hiatus to Baltimore. He folded his baseball career, where in 1992 he hit... 304 for Atlanta, and in 1997 stole 56 bases for Cincinnati. 
I remember interviewing Sanders at Red's Spring Training Camp about his less-than-ceremonial departure from the Dallas Cowboys. He asked me to come back after, as he put it, he messed around in the batting cage. I did. We talked. He was forthcoming, entertaining as ever. Then he departed for what he made his only known vice, fishing. He got arrested once for trespassing on someone's lake. When the cops called him to come ashore, he refused. He was catching so many fish, he explained, that he decided to stay a little longer because doing so wasn't going to lessen the penalty. Not unlike, arguably, the first mega-showman black athlete, the boxer Jack Johnson, who gave a cop who pulled him over for speeding twice the fine because Johnson said he would be coming back just as fast. But there is no valor in playing the exploitative game of college football, which is especially manipulative of black male labor. Like the exploiters before you, those for whom you may have played, or who were or are, on the opposite side of the gridiron, for all that Sanders is exalting about young black men in his tutelage, there were those he ran off the team upon arrival from his last stop, the historically black university Jackson State, to make room for his imported crop. So I can't yet laud Sanders as some sort of transformative figure in college football who is, as the cliché goes, changing the narrative. He's still making his bank, and plenty of it, like the peer group in which he's ascended. Black male labor under him is still undercompensated and lacking the health care and insurance it not only deserves but needs. Like star Travis Hunter, who was sidelined from a cheap shot in the Colorado State game that left him with a lacerated liver. Why can't Hunter have the hospital, short-term disability, or accident insurance from Aflac, or pardon me, for whom Sanders is an endorser. And Hunter is one of 60-some black players on Sanders' roster of a 100 or so at a university where the undergraduate black male population has about 1%. Maybe in the future Sanders can bring Colorado to value black males in the classroom as much as it does in the athletic space. Sanders hasn't, as some have argued, changed the game. He hasn't exposed the inequities that have been apparent for years, even to the most casual viewers of college sports. He isn't revolutionizing the most important part of the game, which is its structure. Sanders, however, has the command to start exactly that, a real revolution in college sports. We know he is certainly bodacious enough to do so, and it'd be, after all, for the culture. Back to the New York Times for the next article from Media, What to Watch. With Young Love, Matthew A. Cherry Weaves a Warm Chicago Tale. This was posted September 22nd, written by Christopher Kuo. Based on the Oscar-winning short Hair Love, the former NFL player's new series on Max tells the story of a young black family trying to make it. In 2006, Matthew A. Cherry was a wide receiver, struggling to get playing time in the NFL, bouncing between teams, and getting signed and cut again and again. After injuring his shoulder and being placed on reserve for the Baltimore Ravens, he was ready to move on, 
Using the Hollywood Creative Directory, he looked up three black showrunners in Los Angeles and mailed letters to each of them asking for a job. Then he packed his bags and drove to Hollywood to pursue his dream of becoming a filmmaker. Sixteen years later, Cherry has worked his way from production assistant to successful writer-director. In 2020, he won an Oscar for Hair Love, an animated short about a black father who struggles to style his daughter's hair while her mother is hospitalized. Now, he has an animated sequel series on Max, Young Love, which follows the same young black family in Chicago. It premiered on Thursday. Although Cherry feels that he has finally made it in the industry, he still seems a little surprised at how he got here. My whole career, I've been going in through back doors and building doors, and there are no doorways, he said. On a recent Thursday, Cherry ambled through Central Park on a break between TV interviews about young love. He is tall and athletic, but he is also a nerd, gushing about seeing Lin-Manuel Miranda in the audience at Shakespeare in the Park and rattling off the names of filmmakers he admires. Born to a mother who worked as a legal secretary and a father who worked in a factory, Cherry grew up in Albany Park on the northwest side of Chicago. He and his sister would often visit their grandmother and eat home-cooked fried chicken and mac and cheese in her big brownstone in a mostly black neighborhood on the west side, where young love is set. He took an early interest in sports, but he also became fascinated with music and movies, starting with obsessively re-watching a Winnie the Pooh movie. We rented it so many times from the video store that the owner just gave it to us, he said. In high school at Loyola, Loyola Academy, a private school in a northern suburb, he participated in a radio and TV club and was one of five black graduates in a class of 500. He was also good at football, very good, and earned a full-ride scholarship to play at the University of Akron in Ohio. While there, he nourished his twin passions for sports and entertainment, studying radio and TV broadcast and media production, and becoming a music director of the college radio station. Cherry lit up the field in Akron. He set a school, pardon me, he set a school record for most yards on punt returns in a season and was named second team All-Mid-American Conference in 2003. His NFL career, unfortunately, was not your typical millionaire story, he said. Over the next few years, he was shuffled around the league and played in nine cities and two other countries, trying to land a long-term spot on a roster. But even as he struggled in the league, he continued to keep up with the entertainment world. Chris Thompson, a running back and Cherry's former teammate, said, He always had the latest music and the latest videos. He was one of the first guys to put me on to Kanye West. By 2007, Cherry retired from the NFL and decided to pursue his other longtime dream. With the help of Streetlights, a nonprofit that helps people of color get jobs as production assistants, he landed his first job as a production assistant for Girlfriends and later worked on NBC's Heroes. At the same time, he would search MySpace and message R&B artists offering to make music videos for them. He didn't own recording equipment, so he got permission to borrow cameras from the Heroes set for his own music videos. He's not traditionally trained as a filmmaker, said Monica A. Young, who has worked as a producer for Cherry on many of his projects. He learned on the job. 
Cherry's idea was to create an animated short about a young black girl's hair. At the time, the animated film space was still dominated by mostly white characters, and he wanted black kids to be just as well represented. My whole life, I never really had those characters that I could look at on screen and say, Wow, that's me, he said. What resulted, Hair Love, was a resounding success. In addition to its Oscar, it became the basis for a best-selling children's book and the inspiration for a line of Dove Kids hair products. About his latest, he said, I've never really seen a family show that centers on millennial parents, young parents that have tattoos, dealing with health issues and lack of insurance, and all the things that we are dealing with today. We really wanted them to represent a new age of parenting. For Cherry, the show is also about showing a black man on screen who isn't an absent father, who is deeply involved in his daughter's life. Recently showed the trailer for Young Love to Theory, his daughter, and he said she likes gazing at the Hair Love picture book even though she is too young to read. That brings me to the end of our time. Thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by the Community Foundation of Boulder County. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303 786-7777.